0: This evening we'll look at Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 12 as the subject of our sermon. And please do rise and hear this God's holy word, this treasure that he opens to us, this bread that he breaks for us. Hear now the word of God. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed." Forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser." Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Amen. When you think of how to characterize the Christian life, what sort of images come to mind? Perhaps you think of a marathon or a a battle, which are both legitimate. The Apostle Paul describes the Christian life in those ways. Perhaps you think of a, a journey or a path. Also, of course, legitimate. This is the way, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Psalm 1 speaks of it in this way, and of course Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is uh, clearly establishing the Christian life as a journey. There are many analogies, many figures, many ways to picture or present the Christian life But one of the ways that the scriptures often speak of the Christian life is as a feast. This example, this picture is used throughout the scriptures of what the Christian life is really characterized by. In Psalm 23, we are told that we are enjoying a feast even in the presence of our enemies provided to us by the Lamb. And then, of course, at the end of the scriptures in Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, we have the great uh, feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb prepared for us that we are to enjoy for all eternity. So often throughout the scriptures, and these are only a few examples, we find the Christian life described as a joyful feast, and so it is, and so we should perceive it to be. Are we not united to Christ and fed upon him continually? Is he not our nourishment and strength and joy? Is he not uh, the feast that we have before us at all times? We ought to have, therefore, not a constant dour expression or complaining about how difficult life is, though it can be of course, but we ought to have a sense that we are enjoying a feast always that God has given to us in salvation, in Christ, and this is a great characteristic of the Christian life. We have it again in our passage this evening in Proverbs chapter 9, and we recognize when we read of wisdom here personified and put into the feminine, of course, because the word in the original is feminine, and so she is personified as a woman and often contrasted then with the adulterous woman earlier in the book of Proverbs. We recognize that wisdom personified, though spoken of as a woman, ultimately does refer and must refer to Christ himself who is the wisdom of God incarnate, who is the alone, wise God in the flesh. And what we find here is then this invitation from wisdom, depicted as a queen who has this party prepared, but ultimately driving us to Christ as the one who invites uh, the entire world to this feast. This call of wisdom, then, is the call to salvation and the enjoyment of salvation as the entirety of the Christian life, that is, through the entirety of that life. And so, with that in mind, we'll look at our passage under three headings. First, verses 1 through 6, we have the Feast of Wisdom. And then, verses 7 through 9, we have the Rebuke of Scoffers. And 10 through 12, the fear of the Lord. We begin then with the feast that wisdom has prepared. And notice how carefully, how lavishly, how long this has taken to prepare. First, we are told that wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. In other words, wisdom has built a house for the occasion, This is not just some party she will throw on the weekend and says, maybe we'll have a couple people over. No, she has planned this so fully and at such a long time and at such expense to herself that she has built a palace for the occasion. And it is an elegant and stable palace that has seven hewn pillars attached to it. It is a glorious place in which to feast. It is a mansion that she has built for this very occasion. Matthew Henry puts it this way, Wisdom, not finding a house capacious enough for all her guests, has built one on purpose, and both to strengthen it and beautify it, she has hewn out her seven pillars, which make it to be very firm and look very great. Heaven is the house which wisdom has built to entertain all her guests that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is her Father's house with her many mansions. This is a picture of the structure, the the building that is made in which we can enjoy this feast. And so it is clearly a picture ultimately of heaven itself that has been built. But then notice the feast that is prepared. She slaughtered her meat the fatted calf, no doubt, and she mixed her wine with spices to make it most luxuriant and gratifying. She furnished her table. She makes it ready. She prepares everything for this most lavish feast, this most delectable feast. She has it all ready and has planned it for so long. And then she is beginning to send out her messengers. She sends out her maidens to cry out and even to the highest of places so they stand above the city so that all can hear. And they invite to this great feast. Now, who, whom do they invite, though? You might ask yourself, whom would you invite? If you had specifically built a palace in order to have a feast... Whom would you invite to that great feast? Loved ones, perhaps? Maybe you would look for the noble men and the great ones of this earth to come to this magnificent palace you have designed for the occasion to partake of this lavish feast you are setting before them. But whom does wisdom invite? There in verse 4, whoever is simple, Let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, come, eat of my bread and drink the wine I have mixed. She specifically invites fools to this great feast. Those who are simple and those literally who have no heart. When it says lack understanding, it means they have no heart. They are heartless. They are foolish. These are the worst That you could imagine. Why would she invite such ones as these to this lavish feast so long in the making? Why would she announce this to them and call them to it? Notice, of course, there is only one requirement to come. It is that they turn from their foolishness. There in verse 6, forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. The one requirement then is they must turn away from their foolish ways in order to come to this feast. Of course, we recognize that everything here is a picture of salvation. And you can hardly read this account without thinking of Matthew 22 and the feast that was prepared and the nobles who were first invited and scorned the invitation so that the invitation was sent to the ends of the earth, to those who are the least... Well, that is the same sort of thing here. Wisdom is inviting those who are fools. There is no stratification here. There is no first to this group, then to the next. It simply describes everyone that is invited as a fool because there are no other people to invite. We are all fools who lack heart. We are all those who have a heart that is hardened and rock-like against the Lord and are foolish and declare, as it were, there is no God. We are all the fools. There is no one else wisdom can invite except for foolish people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here we find the invitation goes out to those who are sinners to those who are fools, and the only requirement is turn from your sin and come in here. And notice, of course, then what this means, a slaughtered meat must signify. It is the very blood of Christ that was shed to procure this feast. The penalty, the price that was paid for this feast to be offered was nothing short of Christ and him crucified that was the great payment that was made to make this invitation possible but what does it really mean to have a feast why what does it really mean to be invited to this feast what is what is the delicious nature of it what is the satisfying nature of it in terms of the spiritual sense the the physical picture how does it really relate to the spiritual Joys of a feast. Simply consider our shorter catechism, questions 36 through 38, for example, to have some sense of the the joys of the Christian life. What are the benefits which in this lifetime do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification in and of themselves part of the feast? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love. Can you feast on that? Peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. The next question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory in their bodies, being still united in Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Is that not a feast for us to anticipate? Is that not satisfying to hear and a joy to our souls? Question 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. From beginning to end with really only but a crescendoing effect, the Christian life is a feast to the soul. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, There is, in the gospel, a complete provision for all the needs of man's soul. There is a supply of everything that can be required to relieve spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. Pardon, peace with God, lively hope in this world, glory in the world to come are set before us in rich abundance. It is a feast of fat things. All this provision is owing to the love of the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He offers to take us into union with himself, to restore us to the family of God, his dear children, to clothe us with his own righteousness, to give us a place in his kingdom and to present us faultless before his father's throne at the last day. The gospel, in short, is an offer of food to the hungry, joy to the mourner, a home to the outcast, a loving friend to the lost. It is glad tidings God offers through his dear Son to be at peace with sinful man. Let us not forget this. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the feast. Do you believe it? Do you live as though you believe it? Do you have joy in the Christian life because you are satisfied on the things of God that he provides? The Christian life is a feast. You're invited to it, you come to it, and as a Christian you begin to enjoy it for your entire Christian life, even unto eternity. Which brings us to our second point, verses 7 through 9, the rebuke. Now, you might say to yourself, that is a strange transition. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself and so forth. How does that fit? But it fits perfectly, doesn't it? Because the invitation itself is implicitly a rebuke. It is a call to fools to turn from their folly. It is a call of repentance from sin. It is a declaration that everyone invited to this feast, you, 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 and all people are fools, and you need to turn from your folly if you would enjoy this feast. Right there, embedded in the imitation itself, is a necessity to rebuke, is a necessity to call to repentance. There is no possibility of true evangelism or true calling to Christ without the call to repent from your sins. And so it is a very natural transition, because some who are invited will not be happy to be called to repentance, to enjoy this feast, they will be such fools, rather, that they will become angry with you for that invitation slash rebuke slash repentance, and so they will become angry at you, and so uh, turn upon you. That uh, we are told, in essence, the same thing that our Lord says in Matthew seven six: "Do not throw what is holy before dogs and before swine." Uh, that is the same. Uh, Statement here, in effect, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. The images of this, the messenger goes out, he says, turn from your folly and enjoy the feast of Christ. And people begin to mock him and scorn him, and he begins to try to call them to repentance still, and begins to, to reason with them, and so forth and so on. But at a certain point in time, he realizes there is no correcting such a scoffer as this, and he knocks the dust off his feet and turns from him. Now we need to understand some caveats here. However, when we when we look at the Great Commission and the free offer of the gospel to everyone and so forth, we should recognize he's not saying there are some people that you shouldn't invite. That's that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there are some people that you discover after you've invited them that you cannot deal with them any longer. How do you know when someone is a scoffer, when someone is this wicked man? How do you know unless you invite them and the response demonstrates it? So it is not saying there are some that you can, you can say, well, those people we're not going to evangelize because they're clearly scoffers. How do you know? Have they rejected the offer in such a way that they identify themselves as such? The response that is in view here is a rather violent response, is a rather angry, blaspheming response as... Christ makes clear again in Matthew 7, 6, a response that makes it obvious that there is no longer dealing with such a person that to continue dealing with them would be but to provoke them to greater violence against Christ and greater blasphemy against him. And there has come a time to walk away and knock the dust off your feet. Another caveat we should recognize, though, is that there are times when You must still speak to such ones as these and suffer the consequences. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 uh, proclaimed that full sermon to a crowd who's already antagonistic and already wanted to kill him. Why did he do so? Because they were going to kill him. And he had this opportunity to proclaim the gospel before he died. It is a very different scenario than the one we have here. He was called to that. He was bound for death. He was on the path. They'd already seized him. Why not take the opportunity to proclaim the gospel then? There are caveats. There are ways in which we recognize that we must discern when someone is in this category and when not. For example, as I've mentioned before, there have been about a few times when I've knocked on the doors of people in the neighborhood to speak to them about Christ and been met immediately with a fervent anger and threats. Well, that is someone clearly is a scoffer. You don't sit around and wait for him to go get his gun before you knock the dust off your feet and leave. That is a sort of person in view here as well. Someone who will not listen, but rather responds with such ferocity that it is time to leave. But then there are those who do listen. We are told there, the second part of verse 8, Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. There are those who will respond to this invitation And they will love you for rebuking them. Is it not so? Those that you speak to about their sins and need to turn from them and turn to Christ, if they hear that, if they heed that, then they return to you and say, we are so grateful you told us that. We are so delighted you called us sinners. Because otherwise, how would we have turned from our sin? We love you for telling us that. And it continues in the Christian life along that way, doesn't it? Because true wisdom delights in rebukes, not necessarily at the initial stage, but ultimately because they see that it issues from love and has their good in view. When someone comes to you and is concerned enough to come to you and put themselves into that unpleasant place to speak to you about your sin... You know they love you. And if you listen to them, you're wise. And you will thank them for it later, won't you? Because they've helped you to partake even more of this feast and turn away from the dunghill deities unto the lavish feast of the Lord Jesus. How wise are you, brethren, How do you take rebukes? How do you take confrontation about your sin? That is a test of your wisdom. That brings us into our third point, the fear of the Lord, verses 10 through 12. Those who hear this invitation, those who have wisdom then, are those who fear God now and know God. That's what we find, especially in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Derek Kidner speaks of these two verbs, these two statements, to fear and to know God, and he says with these two phrases, verse 5 encompasses two classic Old Testament terms for true religion, The poles of awe and intimacy. How often are these two ideas combined in the scripture as if absolutely natural? Rejoice with trembling, fit together. Fear God and know Him. Have this fear of Him and this intimate knowledge of Him both at one and the same time. Not one and not the other, both together. This is a classic statement of what the true life of spirituality ought to be then, beginning with the fear of God. To fear God is to fall down in awe before him and tremble before him. That is true wisdom. Who else and what else is there to fear if not God? What is more fearsome than God? What is the creature, the, the limited, the the impotent, the, the frail, the finite? What is the creature compared to Almighty, infinite, eternal and glorious God? There is but one thing to fear, and that is God. There is but one thing to fall before and honor and obey, it is God. And those who do not fear God do not even have the beginning of wisdom, they are absolute fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Even creation teaches us the glory of God and the need to fear and honor him. Romans 1 makes that clear. The true fear of God that is clean, however, that is pure, however, is not this craven, fleeing fear of the condemned sinner. It is not the fear we see in Revelation when the Lord returns and those who are apart from Christ flee from him and cry out for the rocks to fall upon them. They would rather be crushed by the rocks if there's any opportunity to hide from God. That's not the fear in view. The fear in view is that true honor, that true humility, that true acknowledgement that God is God and not we ourselves. Here's how Matthew Henry puts it as he tries to define true fear of God. A reverence of God's majesty and a dread of his wrath are that fear of him which is the beginning, the first step towards true religion, whence all other instances of it take rise. John Flavel, the Puritan, defines this righteous fear, This fear is a gracious habit or principle which God plants in the soul, whereby it is kept under a holy awe of the eye of God. As a result, it is inclined to do what what pleases God and avoid what he forbids, and hates the fear of god that is not pure that is not clean flees from him as adam and eve in the garden after they sinned but the fear of god that is true that is right comes before him and falls down and trembles at his glory that is the fear of god that is pure that is clean that acknowledges who he is it is a sanctifying not a fleeing fear of God, and it is the beginning of wisdom. But it is joy, notice with this, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The wise man who fears God also knows God. Many times we have made clear, and others have said, this term for knowledge is a term for intimate knowledge. It is the same term used in Genesis four one. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a child. It is an intimate knowledge. We are to know God as those who are united to him by faith, as those who are bound to him in covenant, as our husband. We are to know God intimately, personally, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our God, and we his people. We fear him, and we know him, we fall down before him, and we are bound to him in love. This is the Christian life. This is true wisdom. This is part of the blessing of the feast spread before us. But notice as well that he speaks in verse 11 of one of the benefits, for by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. The wise man is blessed with long life. Now, we have heard such things from televangelists, perhaps, and we've grown weary of such statements, and we often challenge them and say, Really, long life? Would you describe the life of Jesus as long? Is that the length of life that we're talking about? But what he means is, in general, by comparison, the life is lengthened just in earthly terms. The fool who turns from his sin, which is deadly, unto Christ, simply in earthly terms, is turning from that which shortens his lifespan. Who would argue that in general, in proverbial terms, the drunkard and drug addict and criminal and whatever else, who turns from his folly unto the Lord, is going to live a shorter life than if he had continued in that life. There is length of days added to the lives of those who turn to that which supports, enhances, lengthens life. But of course, ultimately, there is a length of life that is for all eternity. There is an everlasting life gained by this wisdom. Again, Matthew Henry puts it this way, By me thy days shall be multiplied. It will contribute to the health of thy body, and so the years of thy life on earth shall be increased, while men's folly and intemperance shorten their days. It will bring thee to heaven, and there thy days shall be multiplied in in infinitum to infinity, and the years of thy life shall be increased without end. But notice, and finally, in verse twelve, another. Additional blessing is noted if you're wise, you're wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you'll bear it alone. But what does that mean? If you're wise, you're wise for yourself. He's saying it's for your benefit. It's not as if the Lord is saying, Here is wisdom, it's glorious, and it's a trick. No. Here is wisdom. Here is a feast. It is glorious. It is to your benefit to partake of it. It is but for your benefit. And those who deny it and scoff, they will sit before the judgment seat of God alone with no one to blame but themselves. Finally, a final quote from Matthew Henry. The happiness of those that embrace it If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. Thou wilt be the gainer by it, not wisdom. A man cannot be profitable to God. It is to our own good that we are thus courted. He's saying, it's not that God is saying, I'll give you this little thing, and then I'll trap you, and I'll use you to my great benefit. There is no way we can have greater benefit to God than he gives to us. It is you who gain by this wisdom. And then he goes on to add the second part, Thou shalt bear the blame of it, the other side of it, those who scoff and reject it. Those that are good must thank God, but those that are wicked may thank themselves. It is not owing to God. He is not the author of sin. Satan can only tempt. He cannot force. And the wicked companions are but his instruments, so that all the fault must lie on the sinner himself. Thou shalt bear the loss of that which thou scornest. It will be to thy own destruction. Thy blood will be upon thy own head, and the consideration of this will aggravate thy condemnation. Son, remember that thou hadst this fair offer made thee. He's referring then to a New Testament scripture, and thou wouldst not accept it. Thou stoodest fair for life, but didst choose death rather. The Lord is clear. The Christian life is a feast, well-prepared, sumptuous, long in the making, beautiful, strong, delicious. And it is offered to all, particularly to those who are fools, which we all are. And the imitation to this joyful, lavish feast was purchased by the blood of Christ and offered freely to all. What a fool would refuse. And when a fool proves himself so incorrigible that he, in anger and violence, turns against the invitation, then we leave him and we brush the dust off our feet. But we recognize that we are all fools Therefore, if we've come to Christ at all and entered into this feast, it is only by the grace of God that he has given us a new heart for wisdom. And may we be those then that taste and see the Lord is good and know this life in, in many ways, yes, in many hardships, but know with this great picture in mind that one of the things we can use to describe the Christian life is the image of a feast. It is always, always a feast. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is so good to us. We acknowledge, Lord, that we do not respond to you as we ought, and we do not value the things that you give us as we ought, but teach us to do so more and more. Cause us to have true joy in the feast you have laid before us, of which we will partake now and to all eternity. Bless us, Lord, in this we pray, in Christ's name, amen.